0: Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, White House correspondent for The Daily Signal. And today we're going to be talking about the history of communism, since this is the uh, 100th anniversary of the communist revolution in Russia, and this is... Obviously, a very uh, big topic uh, that you know a lot of people have some very uh, deep opinions on. Um, But communism uh, is something that isn't just a a 20th century phenomenon. It's something that has kind of defined the ideological battles of of our time and modernity and the the debate between a free society and a closed society and and communism. And um, so, there's a lot of misinformation out there about. Uh, what communism is, even from the very beginning, and I, I think we'd like to, you know, start from the beginning here, uh, because this is the hundredth anniversary of the Russian Revolution uh, that took place uh, in the middle of World War One, uh, which set off everything that communism became and was defined by in the twentieth century. Um, it, it was actually one of the, the seminal moments of uh, human history that took place during World War One, So the Russian Revolution was essentially led by Vladimir Lenin and was perpetrated, in, in, to a certain extent, by German funding to knock the Russians out of the war. Um, there's actually a really great book right now uh, that just came out by Sean McMeekin called The Russian Revolution, which, which essentially lays out, um, how this took place and, and the changes that took place there. And I think that's something that is really noted, uh, Fred, is that Russia, before the communist revolution, was in many ways a growing country. There was a lot of investment there. There was, uh, I think to, to today, this kind of notion of Russia as a kind of uh, kind of backwater is a little bit uh, inappropriate, certainly at the time. Yes, their system did have some backwardness in it, but it was modernizing very quickly. Huh. After the Russian Revolution took place, things kind of went bad there for a very long time.
1: Well, right, right. It was it was centralized. Went to the centralized planning model on agriculture, controlling most of the economy, and so forth. It was um, with, with within the Soviet Union they they uh, they actually referred to during the revolutionary times. They referred to some of the workers proletariat as Soviets, which is where they derived some of that name. But um, it's uh, one of the big interesting aspects of the revolution is that they promised we'll bring democracy to Russia. Once we get rid of the czarist system, we're going to bring democracy. We just need this provisional government and just move forward after that. Of course, it didn't. It went from Lenin and the Stalin, which was this horrible dictatorship that led to millions of deaths.
0: Absolutely. It's amazing that Russia, since uh, since the time of the Russian Revolution, has never had uh, a positive uh increase in immigrants since that time people used to go to russia because of the opportunities there since that time that hasn't been the case even after the collapse of the soviet union so this one moment in their history uh Totally changed the course of their civilization and did incredible amount of damage to the average person. Now, of course, when the Russian Revolution happened, this was seen as some bold new experiment by a lot of uh, people on the in the global left and certainly in the United States. And I think uh, one thing that, that needs to be noted is uh, how much uh, the, a lot of liberals in the United States made excuses for this, particularly, of course, the New York Times and they still are and and they still are and of course the the, the the biggest fake news story if we that is definitely a term we use quite quite often these mm-hmm. days uh, of the early 20th century was done by the New York Times by a Pulitzer prize winning journalist Walter Durani, who reported who was the Moscow correspondent for the New York Times and reported on the goings on there and uh, frankly hid The kind of terrible things that were happening within the Soviet Union. Now, this was in the 1930s when a lot of American liberals were trying to see, oh, you know, they've done some neat experiments there in economics. They took ideas from the Soviet Union for the New Deal. Uh, Durani basically went there and reported that. All those stories you hear about Soviet atrocities, well, they're exaggerations. There's no real starvation going on in Ukraine. Of course, there was a starvation going on in Ukraine, the War, uh that was absolutely terrible. But he really concocted this whole, uh, I mean, fake story about the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. Can you talk a little more about that, Fred?
1: Well, yeah. And uh, yeah. first, jump into the fake news term. I think uh, sometimes people do perhaps... Rightly so. Criticize that term as being thrown around too often, sometimes when the president uses it uh, to describe news he doesn't like. But in this case, it was actually fake news, as in the reporter knowingly reported incorrect information. And uh, and this is the the um, the Ukrainian uh, starvation that led to millions of deaths. Uh, the New York Times did win a Pulitzer. They never gave that back. That that was under consideration by uh, by the Pulitzer board several times. They they considered it, uh, and uh, they they uh, each time uh, over over a period of decades, they decided not to pull that back. Uh, part of the reason for that was you know, not to get too into Pulitzer politics necessarily. But uh, part of the reason for that was that it was, I think Duranty was part of a team and what won it was a larger series. And his fabric, Walter Durante's fabrications were part of a larger body of work that won the Pulitzer. But nevertheless, I mean, that was like the the most staining part of that reporting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it must be known. I mean, of course, the, the exact numbers of total number of people who died there is still not known. The guess is somewhere between two and Twelve million people, and this was no hmm. small thing. And <laughs>
1: that's a pretty big gap. It's, a, it's well, a pretty right. big
0: gap because you know a lot of the information there was hidden by the Soviet regime, right. and and Durani was uh, in, in some ways because he was trying to keep his sources open with the Soviet. Of course, we don't know entirely his motivations for making up uh, stories about the Soviet uh, Union, but uh, was hiding a lot of what was going on there. And um, uh, something today, fortunately, you know, in modern times, we actually have now a. Memorial memorial uh, dedicated in Washington, D.C. to the Hold'emore starvation, the the famine in Ukraine, that finally... Uh, finally pays tribute to the people who died there uh, really almost secretly to the world because the New York Times in the mid 20th century was such a big publication you weren't getting a whole lot of stories otherwise
1: well that, that that's important because uh, the New York Times did for and still does some degree still drives much of the news agenda and that in those days it drove the entire national agenda for the for the country uh, and much of the world as as you wrote about Uh, and and I think that was made it much more deplorable act of fake news by Durant.
0: Yeah, it's something that we can be thankful for today that in some ways we have a more decentralized media environment in which uh, fake news stories like this would be harder to keep covered up because there'd be other reporters and other publications that may have different points of view and uh, would potentially uncover this and and to say that that what the New York Times did had a large effect would be an understatement. I mean, this definitely impacted American policy, how Americans viewed the Soviet Union. I think uh, certainly at that time, there were a lot of excuses made for the Soviet system and seeing as, well, it could be just a compliment to America's
1: system of freedom and democracy. And and, and, and piggybacking off that just a little bit, uh, is um, we saw decades later uh, in Cuba, a New York Times reporter who was a very Pro Castro also had a major impact on the public perception there as well. So,
0: yeah, I mean that's, that's that is that is for sure. And what's I think is really interesting about this is, of course, the New York Times has been a big part of this. Is that. Even to today, the New York Times is, is making excuses
1: for, right. for the you, Soviet Union yeah, and yeah, for yeah, communism. One, one, might, one might think that they would sort of feel I don't know maybe a little tinge of <laughs> guilt or maybe penance or maybe go a little harder on <laughs> this you know, collapsed, discredited regime. You, but, you would uh, think,
0: but it appears that the ghost of Durrani still lives there at the New York Times. They actually have currently, and it's it's something that really needs to be uh, looked over read to be believed. They have a section in the New York Times opinion section called uh, the Red Century, which is essentially, look, I mean, it has some pieces that uh, certainly go after this, the Soviet Union or communism and things like that. But it, they've also run a number of I always have to say pieces that almost kind of glorify what communism uh, is and has been. I mean, there's some that were real doozies here. I mean, there was one that you know said – there was a one with a headline that says, How did women fare in China's communist revolution? And it really says that women did – well, they did pretty well there. I mean, one quote from the author says, For all its flaws, the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big – to dream big. This is what this uh, author said. And there was another piece that I find no war on women there. So. No war on women there. So that's no good. war on women. Uh, just uh, you know, a few uh, you know tens of millions of deaths. Right. Uh, another piece uh, I also thought was quite as long stunning. As the birth control. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Another piece I found quite stunning was one called uh, Lenin's Ego Warriors," which was I have to say almost a puff piece <laughs> on Vladimir Lenin. Uh, they called him a global pioneer. conservation and and talked about how he uh, had been an avid camper and outdoorsman. And look, I mean, a a lot of publications hold, uh, you know, op-eds that have many different points of view. It is a little stunning to see the New York Times essentially be running these favorable op-eds on an ideology that led to the death of estimates run from 80 to nearly 100 million people. In the 20th century. I mean, this is the most deadly ideology you could say in all of human history that the New York Times has run a section that it, at least to a certain extent glorifies the system. Uh, it certainly is a little shocking and it's it's unfortunate. I can't I can't really see them running, you know, fascism at 75 years or something along these lines. It's interesting that yes. they ran something so positive on the Mussolini kept
1: the trains running on time right
0: right I, I don't expect to see that prefer in,
1: to live one day as a lion than a thousand as a lamb or it, exactly so, so I, th-
0: there's definitely uh there's definitely a lot of modern uh, uh, sympathy I would say right. almost for what the communism I,
1: is I mean well I I uh, I think maybe it stems from what communism professed to be um, Right. Or professed it wanted to be, or maybe aspired to be, or I'm sure some thinkers genuine, genuinely believe that it would be. Uh, or early on in those days, and uh, you know, it, it could not. I mean, either either a society provides people the opportunity to move up, or it represses its people, and and there's it's really impossible to get a single society where everyone is equal, as is stated, but. I, I would actually say I don't really view that as an excuse to defend communism because um, uh, what the ideal might have been because I, I think these other discredited ideologies of the past probably were sold to the public with a some high-minded language so that's that's hardly seems like a really yeah. excuse uh, other than maybe the American left wants to, wants to promote something along those lines.
0: Well, I think, this is the general tenor yeah. I got, especially from this New York Times section, is that, you know, they, they kind of, it was kind of like one of those mistakes were made, but at least their ideals were okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's the general tenor. I think there's, they can't quite excuse the millions of deaths that took place because of communist regimes, but they can't say, well, maybe it would have worked out better had there been better representatives of this worldview. Hence the, the kind of laughable line, well, real communism hasn't been tried yet uh, that you hear from, you know, your typical left wing uh, college campus activist. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it has been tried and that the proof uh, of what it's led to is quite stark. I mean, I, I, some of the there's this, there's this great book called um, The Black Book of Communism that kind of lays out how many deaths have taken place under communist regimes. And uh, honestly, the, the numbers are, are pretty stunning. I mean, it's, it's almost 100 million people uh, in the 20th century. Um, just, I mean, the, uh, some of the numbers here, actually, I have them right here. They're pretty amazing. 65 million people died in the People's Republic of China. That was the, the biggest killer in history. It wasn't the Soviet mm. Union. It was actually right. the Maoist China that was the biggest killer. 20 million uh, dead in the Soviet Union. Uh, the, the, the numbers are actually pretty stunning. And, and certainly mm. other countries like Cambodia, where you had nearly an eighth of the population killed under the Khmer Rouge. Uh, these are regimes that many leftists made excuses for in their own time. They said right. that, well, things were so bad there that America's the real villain in the world. Is really the, the dangerous country in this, this this world. And these were countries that were uh, executing uh, basically mass human slaughter on a scale that was undreamable even by the Nazis.
1: Yeah, well, uh, this was, um, you know, it's not just the 100th anniversary. I mean, you can go back to, I guess, it, we were on the cusp of the, what, the 70th anniversary in 1986. Uh, this was something written by, she was a uh, state senator, Alice Palmer, out of El- Illinois state legislature, uh, she was actually handpicked a guy named Barack Obama to be her successor in the uh, Illinois state senate. But back in 1986, she had traveled to the Soviet Union and and she wrote uh, for the People's Daily World uh, that um, I'm quoting Palmer here, saying, "We Americans can be misled by the major media. Uh, we are we are being told the Soviets are starving." Or I'm sorry, are striving to. That's probably more appropriate. Are striving to achieve a comparatively low standard living with ours, but actually they have reached a basic stability in meeting their needs and are now planning to double their production. Of course, a couple of years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. So uh, she, but but she was quite certain that they were mo- surging ahead of the United States at the time, and I think there were. A number of people, uh, you know, a lot of Americans that on the left that did during the Cold War believe that the Soviet Union was surging ahead. Um, during the Reagan years, early Reagan years, uh, the argument among much of the left was, we can't possibly win the Cold War. Uh, it's not something that's winnable. We need to come to an agreement. After Reagan won the Cold War, uh the line for much of the life was, well, it was going to collapse anyway, so...
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because these same excuses are made even today for socialist regimes. It, that mm-hmm. that rhetoric reminds me so much of discussions about Venezuela in the right. early 2000s, This socialist regime under Hugo Chavez. And there were a lot of liberals, a lot of uh, left-wing intellectuals who said, ah, see, Venezuela is surging ahead of the United States. They have health care for all. They have a, a socialist system. They're going to surge ahead while America is taking a, a downturn in the economy. Of course, Venezuela is the most... I mean, has to, I believe the highest level of oil reserves in the world, at least, uh, at least I believe um, this that this country and and that and basically what is, amounts to a decade went from a fairly functioning country to what we see today, which is one that is in complete collapse, where you have hyperinflation, where the, the average person, the average person is is starving. There was a, actually a piece that, funny thing enough, was in the New York Times recently that, that highlighted the starvation going on there. They made almost no reference to the fact that it was a socialist country. But just a few years ago, you were hearing so much praise of the Venezuelan system as being this, this wonderful thing that is much more progressive and better than the United States. Now the proof is in the pudding. It's a now become. It's gone from a democratic country to the current. Well, so-called President Nicolas Maduro basically mm. becoming a dictator and ending democratic elections. You have people who are starving and dying in the streets where uh, even th- common items like baby formula cost over a month's salary for the average person there. While the elite political class, of course, has retained all its power, all its wealth, and uh, it feeds itself quite well, uh, I, I must say. It's and very it's- much, uh, again, a repeat of what happens at the end of George Orwell's famous... Uh, Animal Farm, which, of course, is right. about the Russian Revolution, right. where the new the new sure. dictators are essentially worse than the old ones, that right. they
1: they and oppress people just the same. And, and, and everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others.
0: That's so. right. So, you know, the, the, the proof really is there for, for what communism is and what socialism does to a society. And that's why it makes me so sad, uh, Fred, to see some of these polls that shows that millennials, the kind of rising biggest generation in America— now has such a favorable opinion of what communism is. Like There's this poll that came out by the, the Victims of Communism Memorial uh, that said that about half of millennials say that they would rather live under socialism or communism than capitalism. And about one in five identified Joseph Stalin as a, a hero. <laughs> now, I think you can get about one in five Americans to agree to pretty much anything, but uh, it's still rather shocking to see these kind of numbers uh, from these youngest generations. Why do you I, think, Fred, that th- this is the case, that so many millennials... I would uh, be
1: interested in seeing if they actually know who Stalin was in, in, in some of those <laughs> cases. But, um, but yeah, I uh, that that is pretty discouraging. I've... Uh, Stalin was someone who uh, he wanted to divide up Central Europe with Germany. He made the non-aggression pact with Hitler. Uh, the only reason those two did not remain a team is Hitler, quite foolishly actually, but Hitler turned on Russia uh, and probably thankfully to the world because that's what led to very much to his demise. But uh, uh, he's— uh, I I that that's kind of uh, that's fairly astonishing that that we'd have this much support for Stalin. It's also discouraging we'd have any support for communism or socialism. What I would I would add to that though, uh, and I never in my life wanted to be a curmudgeon-y old guy or anything, <laughs> and so those pesky kids of this generation. But I I, I do want to add I I would pair this with uh, some other surveys I've seen where millennials. College students have said that they don't believe offensive speech should be considered free speech. That comparing that with communism might be okay makes you worry a little bit about uh, the next generation, whether they're going to how concerned they will be about safeguarding freedom.
0: It, it is very worrying, and I, I think that's. I mean, the United States has been very blessed to have a culture of free speech. I mean, obviously this flows from the First Amendment, from the, the protection of freedom of speech, freedom of press that, you know, we've had since the very beginning to see that culture erode a bit. And certainly on our college campuses, which, you know, I mean, almost everybody has seen the incidents that have taken place there with speakers being shut down, with uh, college students. I mean, the, the so-called triggered snowflakes being <laughs> wanting to shut down people they don't agree with. And this is, uh, is where Worrying for our future. I, I mean, I don't want to make too much out of out of a poll. I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of the millennials' views towards socialism and communism is probably more to due to ignorance than it is to any hard ideology, which is in itself a, a problem. Which, which is why I think there needs to be a lot of information out there about what socialism or communism really are. Uh, but it is worrying for our future that we have young people that have embraced. What ha- a system that has created so much human misery uh, in the history of the world. I mean, I have to say, as, as a as a as a millennial myself, you know, we grew up in kind of a blessed time in America's history. In the 1990s, in particular, the Soviet Union had been smashed. The United States was a, a global hegemon. Uh, we really had no rivals, and we grew up with an incredible amount of just sheer prosperity. Uh, that you know, even previous generation of Americans. Could hardly imagine, and certainly it would be unimaginable to people who actually lived and grew up in Soviet or communist regimes. I mean, look, my my uh, my in-laws uh, who grew up behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, witness this firsthand, as do a lot of people who lived under actual communism as it is actually practiced. And it's not something for the people who've lived under those things w- would ever want to repeat. And it's kind of uh, it's kind of shameful that uh, young Americans today, at such high numbers, uh, believe in these ideas that will not just cause others misery, but themselves, too, if they were actually practiced. I mean, I don't, I don't think that they would actually want the kind of top-down control uh, that is uh, perpetrated by these communist regimes, but mm. certainly they've made excuses for, for uh, on college campuses. And look, I mean, we had a
1: presidential candidate in Bernie Sanders right. who basically
0: that, was a self-professed
1: socialist, and he did he did quite well. He won twenty-two states in the Democratic primaries, so that's and and, and that's no small thing. Did. So it's it's it's
0: it's interesting that here in, in in the West and in the United States, where we fortunately were. We're saved from the ravages of communism. I mean, that could be just because America is uh, an exceptional country. In fact, even the term uh, American exceptionalism, it's originally attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville uh, in describing what America is. But actually, the actual phrase American exceptionalism comes from Joseph Stalin, who explained that American exceptionalism is maybe the reason why... Communism just quite hasn't quite taken off in the United States, so, so it's something that, that Stalin wasn't too happy about. But I think we uh, Americans can feel very happy for that America's unique culture and ideas and institutions have so far uh, made us somewhat immune to what communism is. So I, I have to say I kind of want to I kind of want to end with a with a quote here. This is a again by this this author uh, Sean McMeekin who wrote this great book The Russian Revolution, explaining to uh, young people and, and, and the previous generation um, basically that we need to look at our history, what communism is, and, and really identify how it failed so many people. He wrote um, After communism's century of well cataloged disasters, no one should have the excuse of ignorance. Today's western socialists dreaming of a world where private property and inequality are outlawed where rational economic development is planned for by far-seeing intellectuals should be careful what they wish for they may just get it and i think that's a good way to explain to current generations Look, there's such a terrible history of what communism and socialism have done to the world of people. Hmm. It's up to us to study this history and see how this actually worked in practice and how much misery it brought uh, and so many terrible things for this world. We ha- we really have no excuse, uh, given how well cataloged this is, to think otherwise. And it's uh, it's it's a shame to see, especially you know, people in the West who didn't have to suffer under these terrible systems go through these hard lessons and potentially, you know, bring these kind of ideas to fore. It would be a a, a shameful thing uh, in in world history for sure. Um, So I'd like to thank everyone for for joining us on the right side of history. Uh, We're excited actually to announce that we'll be part of the Ricochet Audio Network now. Uh, If you're coming to us from Ricochet, welcome. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and leave us some feedback. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page when we air our next program. And if you're further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman and Fred's Twitter handle, at FredLucasWH.